This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for April 27, 2022. The NPC podcast was created to discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry during the COVID era. We'll continue the healthcare conversation by answering questions sent by listeners. Just like you. This program is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Imprez is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Imprez tailored best-in-class solutions at www.imprez.com. Our guest today is Brian Bloom, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Bloom Burton and Company in Toronto. He'll join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch, to talk about the annual Bloom Burton Conference, which takes place next week. To start the conversation, here is Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mitch Shannon. We're beginning season number seven of our series, and we've returned to our podcast, Gondola, High Over Center Ice. With us in the gondola is James Shea, General Manager at the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education. Jim, are you all set for the playoffs? I certainly am. I can't wait to see the Habs in the Cup Final again this year. It'll be very good. Habs in the Cup Final. And uh, with us is Mark McElwain, the pharmaceutical industry consultant and senior health policy expert. Mark, you got to love this view from the gondola. You really can't beat it. It's fantastic. From up here, I can see the parade starting to form. Go Leafs. Yeah, I think that's starting on Wood Street and winding its way around to Carlton. So together, we are your skilled podcast hosts known as Jim, Mark, and Mitch, because all the really clever names were taken, such as Pep Boys, Manny, Moe, and Jack, or Invocana. Chaps, we're starting out this new season with a friend of NPC, Mr. Brian Bloom. Listeners will remember his past visits here. Brian, of course, is the American actor and screenwriter. He was the voice of Captain America in The Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and multiple subsequent Marvel titles. No, wait, that's an entirely different person named Brian Bloom. Damn that, Wikipedia. All right. We've got the original and genuine Bay Street Brian Bloom, who was the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Bloom Burton and Company in Toronto. For 14 years, Brian has been right at the center of the Canadian life sciences sector, and it's a pleasure to welcome him back to the podcast. Thank you, Mitch. I'm very happy to be here. Brian, the highlight of the life sciences investors calendar in Canada is the annual Bloom Burton Conference. We're excited that you're going to resume things as a live in-person event on May 2nd and 3rd in Toronto. Looks like you're going to have about 66 companies presenting, and it's the usual eclectic mix, ranging from the well-known to the unknown to me. What should we be looking for at this year's Woodstock for the Life Sciences Investor Community? Firstly, thank you so much, Jim, Mitch, and Mark, for having me on. It's great to be up here with you and to enjoy the view and to talk about Bloom Burton and our upcoming Healthcare Investor Conference. I think after such a crazy year of all of us being at home with our laptops and working from home and not, you know, interacting with each other, the most important thing that I'm excited to take the temperature of is how people are feeling and whether they're optimistic or pessimistic in the capital markets and how investors are feeling. We just come off of a 10-year bull market that peaked 
in 2020 at the height of the COVID pandemic, when the biotech and the pharma industries came to the rescue and all of our stocks were flying high. And it's been a tougher slog over the past two years, specifically the past six months have just been really, really difficult. Most stocks are down and capital is flowing out of the sector. But I kind of feel like that we're at a reset moment right now, exactly as we are all coming together for this conference. So, you know, I'm very excited to take the temperature of investor sentiment as uh, what that will mean for 2022 and 2023. Yeah, seems timely for sure. Brian, it's Mark. It's been said that the pharma companies gained some respect during the COVID years based on the vaccine programs, but that didn't always necessarily translate into higher share prices, especially for many of the growth stage companies, including a few that had been featured at your conference in the past. So what would you say the market is looking for from life sciences companies in the future in 2022? You know, I think we're now in what we call a stock pickers market, which means there's no longer a tide that is easily lifting all boats. And by the way, it wasn't just biotech. Biotech, of course, has its and pharma has its own fundamental reasons why our industry has such a bright future. Right. Our understanding of disease biology, the modern modalities of genetic medicine and genetic therapy. These are all great things that will propel tons of new drugs and products that will come to market and great profits in the future and a growing industry. So the fundamentals of pharma and biopharma are very sound, but we've just come off of, as I mentioned, 10 years of fluffy markets, which apexed in 2020, when even crappy, horrible companies saw their stock soar and were able to easily attract attention and GameStop retail investors were writing about companies that never should have been heard of. And we're coming off of the hangover from that. So what we're in right now is more of a rational market where companies actually have to hit revenue and profit guidance or hit positive phase two and phase three clinical milestones for their stocks to respond positive. Gone is the tide that is lifting all boats. And here with us is more of a rational market where companies need to start performing. Right. The best will survive, I guess. That's what it comes down to. So it's Jim here. And one pattern that we've seen during COVID has been that big pharma is moving to this supposed digital transformation and doing things differently. Do you think that there's actually going to be a lasting transformation of big pharma? Yes and no. So if we can broaden, I know your audience, given your NPC, the National Pharma Congress affiliated and its pharma industry, if we go broadly into healthcare, the delivery of healthcare, telemedicine and e-prescribing and where people get their information and interact with practitioners, that has been the biggest change to the healthcare industry because of COVID and the introduction of digital solutions. But the pharmaceutical industry hasn't really experienced much of a digitization that is going to transform it. Obviously, the way that it sells drugs and details and speaks to prescribers and does medical education, that's all had a huge digital transformation. And yes, I believe that that is here to stay more than it will go. But I don't really think that is going to transform what really matters, which is bringing more drugs to market, expanding care 
generating greater returns for the industry that can be funneled back into meaningful R&D. So yes, I think that healthcare has always been the last industry on the planet where you know, information technology and software and digital tools have infiltrated. I'm glad that COVID has brought that to our healthcare industry, but when it comes to pharma, not so much. Very interesting. Interesting. And speaking of COVID again, it's Jim here again. The Canadian taxpayers put some money into the vaccine developer named Medicago in uh, here in Quebec, and it really hasn't yet provided any meaningful return either financially, medically, socially right now. How do you feel about public investments in private pharma? And, and under the circumstance of COVID, it seemed reasonable, but what are your thoughts on that right now? Oh, well, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Firstly, not to correct you, but Medicago actually has received Health Canada approval for its vaccines. So I don't know anyone who's gotten a stick in the arm with a Medicago vaccine. Everyone I know has, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca. And so I, I'm not really sure they're available. So societally, it hasn't made a huge impact. Um, Medicago, of course, is a plant-based manufacturer. They have a big greenhouse manufacturing and in Quebec City, they're owned by Mitsubishi and Philip Morris, a tobacco company, because they use tobacco plants as their manufacturing machine and platform. All of that said, I'm not a huge fan of my tax dollars being directed by the government, whether we're in an emergency or not, into our industry. Even now, as we look back on what really got us out of this pandemic, Yes, Canada may have been a little bit late because we didn't have homegrown companies that were developing or manufacturing vaccines or developing or manufacturing therapies. Although we do have Abcellera, which did invent, develop, and will soon be manufacturing an antibody for COVID. Whether it was made here, invented here, manufactured here, at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. Pharmaceutical companies and the pharmaceutical industry is a global industry. And they're going to sell globally where they can get the right price and where they can do the most good. And whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or Lilly, or Glaxo, or Regeneron, or Gilead, Remdesivir, companies make their products available. And I'm not really sure that government money to create or to support manufacturing here will make a difference in the next pandemic as if we're going to get, you know, the sticks in the arms a month or two or three earlier. We were a little bit late compared to other countries from getting vaccines and drugs because we're Canada, because we're small and unimportant, because PMPRB makes it very clear that it doesn't want to reimburse for important medicines. It has nothing to do with the fact as to whether it's made here or whether you know, it's made here and it employs Canadians. We're not a very hospitable or welcoming country by federal policy to the pharmaceutical industry. When we're not in a pandemic, the, you know, our feds, you, the message to the pharma industry is we're not interested in your innovation unless it's free or cheap or generic. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the pharmaceutical companies didn't really have a fire lit to serve Canadians, but of course, because they're humane and ethical companies, of course, eventually their vaccines and drugs got in boxes, a Canada stamp was put on them and, and we got them just a little bit late. And to sum it up and to answer your question, I'm not really sure that our government support of expanding manufacturing really made a difference in this pandemic or will in the next. Brian, it's Mark again. 
So overall, what's your report card during COVID for the pharma and biotech companies, the global companies? How did they do? A plus. I mean, when you think of Moderna, who went from receiving a sequence to having a prototype within weeks and being in clinical trials within months and having a vaccine approved within a year. And you could say the same about Abcellera and Lilly and others with vaccines and with monoclonal antibodies or small molecule drugs like remdesivir, which was in development for SARS and reposition for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Our industry poured enormous resources in dangerous circumstances, in labs, in lab coats, in clinical trial centers, meetings with FDA, 24 hours a day, doing what they can to move products forward that will save the world. And we now know, looking back at the data, social distancing and masks did something, although very little, but the products or policies or tools that made the greatest difference to lowering morbidity and mortality and improving clinical outcomes across the population were biotech and pharma products, were vaccines and drugs, vaccines mainly. And our industry, not only that, it's not just that we moved with great speed and poured resources into it for the pursuit of ethical and worldly good, but also profit, which is not a bad thing, but they did it based on modern technologies. This wasn't looking for the next penicillin in a rainforest. We did this based on monoclonal antibody technology, biological engineering, RNA vaccine, you know, lipid nanoparticle delivery, LNP delivery, which of course is also a Canadian invention, BioNTech and Pfizer, and, and questionably the Moderna, how their vaccines are delivered. All of this was based on modern biotechnology science and platforms, which is fortunately what pharma and biopharma is sitting on today. You're listening to Brian Bloom of the Bloomberton Investment Group here on the NPC podcast. Brian, let's get back to the conference. There's some interesting changes since the last time we all met in person back in 2019. I'll use that word that you don't like, the once numerous medical cannabis players who were so evident five years ago were all gone now, but there aren't many psychedelic developers at the conference and there weren't as many uh, health IT companies as might have been predicted. What would you describe as the trend direction? I think that medical cannabis came and went, and thank goodness it did. But what has resulted is a very, very important consumer industry, not much unlike vitamins and supplements and consumer-directed healthcare products that can be taken without a prescription, but maybe with a doctor recommendation. So about cannabis, I actually think it's an important consumer healthcare segment. It's just not going to cure many diseases. And we always thought that it was going to be less important than it is. And I think we were right that it's not going to change the face of the pharmaceutical. When it comes to psychedelics, yes, that came and went. But what has been left in its wake is true pharmaceutical developers that are taking this very important class for serious psychiatric disorders like depression and you know, psychosis and trauma-induced addiction and other things where psychedelic true medicines that are being developed by ATI, by Compass, by Fieldtrip, by others, these are the true legacy of all that cannabis capital that flowed into psychedelics. 
The truth is psychedelics will play an outsized role in the future of CNS and psychiatric medicine. And a few companies remain to do that work. With respect to healthcare IT, many people thought that the whole industry was going to be transformed by technology. That's not the case. But I would say that about one-eighth or one-seventh of the companies that are presenting at our conference are in the digital healthcare or health tech area, and that's good. Um, moving forward, though, you know, we see value in private companies, in publicly traded companies, in biotech R&D companies, in pharma companies that have revenue and that sell products, in medical device and diagnostic, in companies that do engineering for, you know, implants and instruments like MRIs. And we see great value in services, which include digital, but also non-digital ways to deliver better care to Canadians and global patients. And we have companies across every single one of those segments at our conference. And every year, the proportion of biotech versus pharma versus device versus digital, it floats up and down. But generally, we have all segments greatly represented. And that's not by design. We really just look for the best companies, no matter what stage they are, whether they're startups or they're highly profitable, whether they're private or publicly traded, or whether they're in the various sub-segments of healthcare, we just look for best companies. And we invite those companies and they just happen to represent all the different areas of Canada's thriving healthcare industry. Well, you've often noted that capital is international and plentiful and always seeking opportunity. You and Jolien and your team have been great advocates for Canada-based life side companies and for Canada as a place to do business. What would make your work as an advocate easier, or to put it another way, what's it going to take to draw more venture capital to Canada? Better management teams. And that's not to say that the four good CEOs that we have aren't good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We have more than four. Look, we have a handful of superstar CEOs. We have a great crop of others that are doing good work and that are learning every day. We're not Boston or San Francisco or New York or London where for more decades than we have had, have had a innovative healthcare industry or biotech industry or pharma industry. You know, we're not, you know, Research Triangle Park or New Jersey where people fall out of Glaxo or Merck and they've had 20 years experience when they start and they work at younger companies or they sit on the board and contribute to younger companies. Canada's ecosystem of innovative healthcare companies is just a couple decades old. So there's not much we can do to increase the experience and allow the wine to age and to be better. But like a good wine, every year that passes, our crop of CEOs and C-suite executives does get better. We now are at the point where some CEOs are on their second or third company. They've already had one or two exits. They've made money for their venture investors or their other investors two or three times. They're either retired and sitting on boards and mentoring the next crop of leaders, or they're onto their next company. And that's really, really great. And that's what we need. You know, Canada doesn't have a lack of great technologies sitting in universities or being published in publications or, you know, in someone's garage, someone has a great idea at a bar sitting with his friend, hey, we should form this new company. Wouldn't it be great if we did this or delivered this or sold this? We have the ideas. Capital, as you mentioned, is international, fungible, and crosses borders very easily. 
you know, we just need our C-suite, our management crop to mature. And it's happening. Brian, it's Mark again. So with the, what we used to call the FANG companies investing heavily into healthcare and the so-called consumerization of healthcare you were talking about earlier, isn't everybody in pharma just going to end up working for Silicon Valley eventually? I don't think so. At the end of the day, pharma companies, what they really do well is understand the foundational science and how to orient that science to make commercial products and then to deliver those commercial products. You know, if Amazon ever gets into being, and it, I think one day they will be the world's leaders in, you know, distributing drugs, logistics of drugs. I mean, if I was McKesson, I'd, I'd be worried. If I was uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, I'd be, I'd be worried, or CVS or, or Walgreens, I'd be worried. But if I was Merck or Johnson & Johnson or Regeneron or, or Gilead, I, I wouldn't be too worried. I don't think these Silicon Valley companies are really in the business of translating science into meaningful medicines and meaningful products and services that affect patients. And I think there's a lot that those FANG companies can do to get rid of middlemen to disrupt in lower costs and to democratize access. So there's lots of industries adjacent to healthcare, like insurance, like access, like PBMs, like distributors, like warehouses, like logistics, like sales, like the dissemination of information. Lots of ways that these companies can disrupt, but I don't think the farmers have much to worry about. Okay, so let's talk about the trend to remote work that COVID brought to the fore. Has that trend alleviated Canada's brain drain by opening up access for Canadian companies to talent around the globe? Or has it made the brain drain worse by it being easier for Canadians to work at US salaries for US companies? Have you seen the good or the bad? With respect to the audience of this podcast, which is mainly the pharmaceutical industry and the biopharma industry, the vast majority of the functions of our biopharma industry, which is research and manufacturing and distribution and education, those are relationship-based and a very local business, right? You have to actually be in a location to hold the test tube or to hold the hand of a patient in a clinical trial to be in a hospital to sell, you know, a new instrument or to stock a drug. And, you know, very little in our industry can be outsourced. You know, when we talk about COVID and we talk about sitting at home, it's not much different than, you know, when the generic industry started making generic drugs in India and China and displacing the North American industry. That is true as long as it is a commodity you're talking about. Anything that rises above a commodity is not very easily offshored or genericized. And I just think our whole industry really does depend on and benefit from being together, doing things together, forming relationships together, persuading together, and building value together. And that's a very local thing. When it does come to you know, regulatory business development, licensing, technology transfer, and finance, those areas of the business certainly are less local, <laughs> can be done through Zoom. And, and we've seen a brain drain when it comes to the Canadian talent leaving 
to get you know, the same job at a US company, but in US dollars, or for greater money and in US dollars, and therefore uh, moving away. But I, I don't think it's, it's really made a huge dent. Okay, so as we uh, wind down the podcast, we'd like to play our word association game. So just go ahead and say the first thing that comes to mind in response to each of the following phrases, okay? I will try and keep this G-rated. Okay, so here's the first one. Dental Corp. Teeth. Okay. Night Therapeutics. Goodman. Mark Cuban's Pharmacy. Basketball. Eugene Melnick. <laughs> Biovail. I still think of Biovail. Finally, the last one. Medical Cannabis. <laughs> Recreation. Nice, nice. Well, it's Jim here. And uh, gentlemen, I think we've seen this development up here on the, the gondola. And it looks like Brian's just got a double minor for looking and sounding so good. So he's gonna, we're going to have to go on to a, a PK here. And uh, of course, that's our prognostication corner as K as in knuckles. So what, what bold predictions can you make about the life science industry during the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I don't really have bold predictions, but you know, over the next two years, I think that our industry is still in the early innings of a long, fundamental, positive, value-creating bull cycle, where because of the science and our understanding of disease biology, the tools that we're playing with, like RNA and gene editing and gene therapy, when it comes to patients, the best is still yet to come. But I must say the capital markets and macro things outside of the life sciences industry. Stuff like, you know, monetary policy and interest rates and, you know, employment and world peace, things that we don't control, money supply, you know, things don't look great, government spending, things don't look that great for risk industries like investing in medical innovation. So I, I really think, you know, there are still huge home runs that will happen that we're going to see and from Canada, like we've just described, but choosing them is going to be harder. And hopefully the markets will be intact and normal and not going through a crisis so that investors and the employees and everyone in the ecosystem can actually celebrate these success and benefit. Well, that kind of brings it down to your opening statement about the idea it's going to be a stock picker's market. It's going to be an investor's picking market for sure. Yeah, it's harder, but the winners are there somewhere. And I just think It'll be fun to watch. Absolutely. I think the fun element is the dirty little secret of what we do. Oh my gosh. TGIM is what my wife says. Thank goodness it's Monday. It is my mantra. I love what I do. And I, it, whether it's a good market or a bad, I just love supporting Canadian companies, helping investors make good decisions, even when I give them bad advice sometimes. And I hope our conference is useful in that respect. I hope to see all of you there. Uh, you could leave the gondola, get some sunshine. Come down to the Metro Toronto Convention Center, May 2nd and 3rd. No, no, no. We, we never leave the gondola. That's part of the contract. We're uh, here 24-7. We've been speaking with Brian Bloom, the Bloom and Bloom Burton, in advance of the Bloom Burton and Company Healthcare Investor Conference in Toronto. It all happens on May 2nd and 3rd, just one week after this episode airs. Brian, thanks for dropping by. And without any doubt, we will see you on May 2nd. And to everyone, thanks for listening. If you have questions for our guest, or comments for us about today's conversation, 
Tag us on Twitter at 2021NPC. You can also send email to health at chronicle.org. Attach a voice clip to your message and you might appear in an upcoming episode. If you like today's NPC podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Find us at Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Imprez, Canada's next generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.imprez.com. This is your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. The podcast producer is Jeremy Visser. Research for this program came from Cristela Tello Ruiz and Catherine Brenders. The musical theme is performed with singular precision by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of Maestro Ernesto Milbrook. We'll be back next week with our guest, Joan Chaffier of Alto Pharmaceuticals. Send us some questions for Joan. Till then, please take good care.